Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always. And today we are joined by Kenda McDonald, behavioral marketing automation expert and best-selling author. Kenda is the brain behind Automation Ninjas, where she helps businesses bridge the gap between what consumers want and what companies need. With a background in forensic psychology, she's uniquely equipped to understand buyer psychology and create marketing strategies that not only convert, but also build lasting relationships. She's a sought-after keynote speaker and the practice lead for demand generation at Marketing Profs. I've asked her to join here, us here today to share her story, plus help us better understand the psychology behind effective marketing. So, Kenda, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah. <laughs> I'm doing really great, especially after that intro. Aww, <laughs> there we go. So, I want to ask, I always like to ask, before we get into, you know, behavioral psychology and marketing and sales, how did you even get into business? Like, do you, were your parents entrepreneurs? Is this a family trade? Are you just a bunch of automation ninjas? <laughs> uh, this is not a family trade. In terms of were my parents entrepreneurs? Yes. Um, I think I was surrounded by a lot of entrepreneurs. Um, my uncle and my mom started the first body piercing and tattoo studio in South Africa. So it wasn't even a thing in South Africa. They came to the UK and then brought it over to South Africa. So sort of kickstarted the alt scene in South Africa a little bit. Um, my grandfather, my biological grandfather and the grandfather that brought me up to two separate chaps, both ran their own businesses. Um, and then, uh, yeah, as pretty much as far back as we go, they've, they've been, they've been strong entrepreneurs in the family. Um, and I think my first business was when I was seven. Um, so my first business, I, no one's ever heard the story before, actually. So you are, you're the first one to hear it because no one's ever asked me that. But um, my first business in South Africa, we have something called a Perlman poaching. So it's abalone, which is like a shell. Um, and it, there's a lot of poaching that happens. And so the poachers will take the, the shells and they'll dump them up in the mountainside. Um, and these shells are beautiful. Their uh, mother of pearl is created from, comes from their shells. So they're super shiny and lovely. And um, my grandmother had a lot of cactuses. She had a massive cactus collection. And of course, when you have a lot of cactuses in a hot, dry country, they're going to make babies. So I took these shells and I carried them down the mountainside and decided that on the uh, monthly market that happened in my town, I was going to sell these shells with little cactus gardens inside them um, at 10 rand a go. Um, and yeah, I made more money than anybody else did at the entire fair because I sold all of them. And I did that. I did that for about two years. Um, I, I ran that and I, I used to get a reasonable amount of money from that. So that, that was my first little business was selling these um, selling these little shells with cactuses inside them. And how old were you? You were seven? Seven. <laughs> That's, I love that. So we signed up for my daughter's side story. My daughter's four turning five and they have some sort of entrepreneurial. There's two fairs coming up and we got her a booth at both. And we're going right. to, we're going to call it made by Malaya. And we've been polishing. We got like a gemstone polisher and her and her mom oh, have been making stickers and we've been having oh. her do drawings and stuff. I don't know what else we're going to do, but we're going to, we've like tried to come up with like Paw Patrol kind of characters. Like there's a whole family of characters. We might put them on t-shirts and stuff, but just for that yeah. exact experience, because I just think yeah. that's so powerful. Like what an impact that must have left on you. Can you talk about that experience? At least what you remember of it. I mean, to be seven, come up with the idea to sell it. I, I, I mean, can you just walk through it a little bit more in detail what you remember about it? You said you did it for two years. I did it for two years. Yeah, we did it. We did it monthly for two years. The Christmas market was always quite something because the prep that I would have to do for the Christmas market was insane. Um, and my family were always pretty good with responsibility in terms of I know a lot of people get animals for their kids for responsibility. We always had animals and I always had chores and responsibilities, but I did not grow up with money. Um, I grew up relatively poor. And so the responsibility from this was great because it meant I got new school uniforms. I got to get new school books rather than have secondhand ones. And so it did make a really big impact on my life because I was also responsible with that money because it was things that I really wanted that I knew were going to help me for that year at school. I got to buy a new school case, you know, like all the things that were really important to me, but also my family couldn't give me at that point in time. 
And so it, it made a big impact, but it taught me a lot because my grandparents, for instance, never helped me with it. Like, of course they helped. Like my grandfather drove his truck up and right. put all the cells inside, you know, and, right. and that kind of thing. And also let the police know that that they were dumping stuff there. But the South African police have got other things to worry about. Um, but yeah, so like they were very conscious of this is your thing. It's your money. You need to do the work. Um, so I would, you know, be sitting there on a weekend, filling these things up with soil from the garden and, and planting things and then watering them and making sure they took root and da 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 da, you know. So um, and then I'd have to pack all of them in a, into the truck as well, because they're not flat on the bottom. They're all wobbly. So, you know, like there's a whole there's a whole thing. But I knew that I had to be prepared for it. I then knew that like I had to pay for my stand. Um, there was no cost of materials because it was right. sand from the garden, soil from right. the garden. It was cactuses from the garden um, and it was things from from poaching, you know, and um, I think it. I think it, it did make a big impact on me in terms of responsibility of money um, and also the responsibility of of running something. You know, people, if I missed a, a, a week, uh, a weekend um, in a month, people would ask where the little girl was, you know, um, with my my crazy curly hair that was always up in bunches. I would I'd be running around like a like I've got ADHD. So you can imagine as a child, it was very unchecked. <laughs> Um, so I made a big impact on all of the other traders as well. But like it it did make a big impact on me in terms of community responsibility, financial responsibility, prepping for things and being, you know, like clear about um, forecasting for stuff, you know, at, at the ripe old age of seven. Wow. I love that. So many business lessons just in that alone. Yeah. So that was your first business. What was your next? Did you help out with the family body piercing? Like, did you have to hold people down if they were squirmers or what? Like, no, I mean the. I th I think the the only thing I really helped out with was my mom used to do a lot of the merchandising in terms of like, um, how my mom never did any of the piercing. She's a tattoo artist now, mm. but she wasn't at that stage. Um, so I used to help with the merchandising, so making the shop front look good. My mom was uh, a, originally a textile designer, and so she's really good at like interior des design and making things look nice. So um, I, I learned a lot about making things look good. So mm. making shop front look good, um, organizing things, how space works, that kind of stuff. And then also going through and like, um, I used to sit there um, at the, above the Purple Turtle, which is where it was in Cape Town. Um, I used to sit there when they were doing stock take and go through all of the stock and all of, you know, I learned how the autoclave works, which is the stuff that sterilizes all the equipment and, and that kind of stuff. So um, yeah, I mean, that was pretty good. Um, in terms of my second business, I'm trying to think now. Um, I think my second business was actually walking dogs. Mm. But that was when I moved to the UK already. Yeah, okay. yeah that was. So you moved from dogs. South Africa to the UK and you started a dog walking business. That's interesting. That was not what I was supposed to do <laughs> when I moved from South Africa to the UK. Um, but yeah, I had to pay for uni. So um, I started a dog walking business and I walked people's dogs. Um, I walked a lot. I walked problem dogs because I grew up with really big dogs in South Africa. Um, and I knew how to look after dogs and how to train them. So I used to walk the unwalkable dogs. And funnily enough, they were all very walkable. <laughs> but I think uh, I think their owners were causing more problems than they were, um, which is usually the case with dogs. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, I kind of paid my way through uni doing a doing a dog walking business. And so you went to school, I guess you got your Bachelor of Science in Forensic Psychology? Yeah. Right. And you did you know you wanted to get into marketing when you did that? Or what, like, you know, what made you passionate about marketing? How'd you get into marketing that? Was, uh, marketing was never the plan. Never, ever. Um, forensics was always the plan, either forensic psychology or forensic pathology. Um, and I was offered a job placement in the British police force while I was still in South Africa. Um, so I was uh, given this opportunity to um, come to the UK. I had an ancestral visa, which means that I could live, uh, study, and work in the UK for like five years plus. Um, so I was given that opportunity. I already had that visa, I applied for it. And they said, come and work 
uh, in the British police force. If you work in the police force for two years, um, we will then pay uh, for you to go through union. You can do it at the same time as working. Wow. Um, obviously, all of this sounded amazing to me, uh, especially coming from a family where I knew I was going to have to get some serious student loans because um, my family could not afford to put me through university. That was on me. Um, so and then they said the magic words. The recruitment lady said the absolute magic phrase. She said uh, the mortality rate in the British police force is 0.1 percent. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's insane and incredible because the mortality rate in the South African police force is 30 percent. Right. So um, at that time. So um, I was like. I can work in a country where corruption isn't huge and the impact that I make will actually get made. Um, and also I can work somewhere where I might not die. Fantastic. Right. Um, and me. Right. So yeah, I, I ended up coming to the UK for that. that was so what originally. was the pivot into marketing? And I mean, um, when it was, was it just sunshine and rainbows in the sense that you just knew exactly what to do to make money rain from the sky? Is that... That's definitely not what it was. Yeah. Um, I moved here and I was sort of like young 18 year old clutching my little letter of like placement in the British police force. And when I got here, they were like, great, uh, the placement is available for you. You just have to naturalize first. And I was like, what do you mean naturalize? And they were like, well, you need to live in the UK for five years. And once you've lived here for five years, the placement is available to you. And I was like, this was not part of anything that I was told. Um, and now I was like, well, I'm screwed because right. what I can do for five years, that's my so entire you, career. You, you had already come to Britain to find that out. Like you're yeah. off the boat. Like you're like, hey, I've arrived. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got it. Small panic. Yeah. Small panic. Big panic. Uh, absolutely terrified. We'd scrape together. Did your family money. come with you? Well, my grandparents were still in South Africa. My mom at this point was living in the UK uh, with my stepdad. So I was so lucky because of that, because right. we'd scraped together just enough money for my visa, which was a lot of money to get my visa. Um, and I didn't have any money to go. Like I was offered police barracks to stay in and that kind of stuff that was all in the in the placement offer. And then to have all of that taken away, it basically right. meant like homeless overnight. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I was just really lucky. I moved in with my mom and stepdad, uh, which was a very fractious relationship. Um, and then I moved in at um, a time in the UK in which there was a lot of xenophobia and people were very not happy about foreigners coming here doing stuff. And so that was quite stressful. I couldn't get a decent job. Um, mm. So I ended up working in a bar. Um, and after about... Um, after nearly a year of not studying, I'd gone from really high academic levels to not studying at all. And I was struggling, like uh, mentally, I was struggling with the fact that I felt like my brain was turning to mush. Mm. Like I was like, I'm not sure I can do this for five years, plus another two years of actual placement. That's seven years. How far down the road is my career path going to be? Right, right, right. And I ended up applying to university. So I studied at Birkbeck University, um, which is part of the University London Union. Um, and I ended up being an international student there, which is hella expensive. So I ended up working several jobs at a time to pay for that. Um, and one of the jobs that I ended up doing was as a PA for somebody who ran a marketing automation business. And it was an interesting juxtaposition of time. I was in my second year and I was doing a neuroscience module mm -hmm. and in the neuroscience module we were learning about decision making so we were learning about you know the the decision processes that the brain goes through when it's choosing things and everything I was studying had a forensic slant because I was studying forensic psychology but um it was really interesting because I was looking at it and then I was looking at the emails I was just a PA when I first started but I was looking at the emails that were being created and sent out as part of this campaign and being like, that's not going to work because that's not how the brain works. Right? How does the brain work? Well, do you want to know? Are you ready? <laughs> I think so. I hope so. So there's, there's two parts to it. There's how we pay attention in the first place. And then there's the purchasing decision. And I think the most important thing for businesses to understand is the purchasing decision, the neuroscience -y bit, right? 
So there was a fantastic experiment done by Professor Brian Knudsen and his colleagues at Stanford University. Um, this is back in mid-2000s. And what they did was they put people in fMRI scanners and they gave them a purchasing decision to make whilst they were in the scanner. So an fMRI scanner allows us to see the activity in the brain and which regions of the brain are producing activity whilst something is happening, right? So people are in the fMRI scanners and the, the experiment was really simple. People were shown an image of a product, um, a product that they might want to purchase. They were shown the pricing of the product and then they were given an arbitrary amount of money and they were given a button to say yes or no whether or not they would purchase that product. So they were going through a purchasing decision whilst they were inside the machine. And the results of that were fantastic. It was just absolutely mind-blowing. So the first part, when people saw a product um, that they might want to purchase, um, when you see something that you want to buy, the reward centers of your brain light up like a Christmas tree. And mm. this is kind of what we expected to see in psychology um, because of the fact that when you see something, you have to emulate having it. That's how the brain understands context around us. And then we are given the drug dopamine. Our brain produces dopamine when we want something. Dopamine is a drug that makes you take action. So it makes you move towards something that is desired. So we kind of expected to see that. It fit with everything that we were thinking about. Great. Um, then when people saw pricing, which was the next part of the experiment, we expected some very specific things to happen. So thanks to some work by um, Antonio Damasio, who's another fantastic neuroscientist, we knew that when you're making decisions, emotion is indispensable to the decision-making process, right? Emotion helps us label something as good or bad, which is why benefits are so important in marketing. Um, but we knew that that was going to, you know, that needed to play a part in, in the process. We also knew that prefrontal cortex activation, so the part of the brain that is responsible for high-level decision-making, was probably going to get involved. So that was the expectation. Um, emotional activation, prefrontal cortex activation. Absolutely not what happened. When people saw the price of a product or a service, what happened instead was the pain center of the brain activated. And this threw everybody for a loop completely, right? Um, so why did the pain center of the brain activate when we saw pricing? So evolutionary psychologists have got involved with this, as they always tend to. Um, and uh, similar things happen when you share food, right? So the pain center of the brain happens when you share food. Anyone who's got siblings will understand that anyway. Um, but when you uh, share a resource, what's happening is you are reducing your chances of survival. Right. And what we need to remember about the brain is that, yes, it's very clever, but at the end of the day, it's a survival machine. Yeah. And you give away a resource, you reduce your chances of survival. And how does the brain make you not want to do that? It makes you feel pain, right? It emulates right. pain. So the pain that people were emulating when they saw pricing is literally the same part of the brain that deals with emotional trauma. So losing a loved one, going through a bad breakup or physical trauma, like breaking a leg or stubbing your toe, etc. So that threw everybody for, for a loop completely because it was not what we expected to see, but it was a stark reminder of the survival aspect of the brain. But it got cooler than that, okay? So as the scans were being replayed and as people were watching these things happen, the neuroscientists on the project were able to go, that person is going to buy and that person is not going to buy before the person had decided whether or not they were going to buy based purely on relative brain activation, wow. right? This is where it gets incredible and exciting. So effectively, um, what happens in the brain, uh, and, and this experiment gave us what we call the purchase formula, which is literally the process of purchase. And I, I don't understand why more marketers don't know about this, um, but effectively, um, the purchase formula is that the net value of a product or a service is equal to the amount of reward activation that the brain has minus the amount of pain activation. So what that means in plain English is that the likelihood of someone purchasing your product or your service is a weighting of the reward activation and the pain activation. And what they found was that the reward activation had to be significantly higher than the pain activation in order to purchase. 
So your pain activation um, had to be less. Um, and as a result, your net value had to be high and it had to be positive in order for people to go through and positively purchase a product. So that was phenomenal. And the impact of that is really important for us in marketing because what do we always try and do in marketing? I don't know. You just froze. Come back. <laughs> or price wait, has. So we wait, always try and go. Wait, you, oh, no, you said yeah. you're back. You're back. You said, you said, what do we always try to do in marketing? <laughs> That's exactly. And then I, I, was, I was like, what? <laughs> what? What? What can tell me? What? What do we always do? <laughs> what we always do in marketing is, we, and, and in sales, is we try and reduce the amount of um, pain that we feel for pricing. So we always try and put our benefits around everything right. and make everything sound so amazing so that people don't feel a lot of pain activation. So right. we always right. try and minimize the impact of pricing. Totally the wrong thing to do. We cannot control the amount of pain activation that people have. Okay, mm. we can't do it. We can mitigate it a tiny, tiny little bit um, by, you know, like uh, all these pricing tactics that people use can mitigate pain a little bit, but it cannot reduce it enough to impact the purchasing formula. The big thing that impacts the purchasing formula is reward activation, right? And that is the thing that we have the most control over and yet the thing that we focus on the least, so the question is, why does nurture work in marketing and marketing automation? Why does content work in marketing and marketing automation? Why does positioning work so well in marketplaces? Why does things like um, reassuringly expensive work so well? It all works so well because those all increase the amount of reward activation that the brain has in relation to your products and services. And here's where I'm going to get the teeniest little bit sciency. So that reward activation comes from something that we call associative recall and memory. Okay, so associative recall is when I say, um, think of a can that is red, has white writing on side it. What is the brand? Right. You're asking well, me. Red. I'm asking no, you. I mean, no. no name to throw your wrench. No, Coca-Cola, of course. Exactly, right? Um, and if we change that up and we said it was red and blue, you're immediately going to think um, something like Pepsi, right. um, et cetera, et cetera, right? That's associative recall. I'm giving you a couple of pieces and your brain is trying to find the things, the memories that associate with that. If you have really high associative recall in memory, you're able to pull that very, very quickly. If I gave you something that was off-brand or obscure, you wouldn't be able to pull it easily. Um, but because it is there in memory and is ingrained in memory and it has certain positioning in your memory, you're able to recall that quickly. Mm. And that means when you come to a purchasing decision and you have a choice between two different things, your reward activation is higher for the thing that you have higher associative recall for in memory. Right. So when you show up and you help your audience, so good quality content marketing, right. when you have high positioning in the marketplace and therefore you have high uh, sort of social standing around your brand, all of these things give you higher reward activation in the brain, which positively skews the purchasing formula in your favor. And that's the thing we need to focus on. And that's the thing we miss out in marketing all the time. So I feel like colloquially, they used to call these greed glands. You have to activate their greed glands. You can charge whatever you want as long as you get the greed gland seething enough. Like you just, you pile on the, like, you know, would it pile on bonuses until they say, ouch, almost. Is that a fair, really gritty way of articulating what you said, where you said that we can't really do much to change how they're going to feel about the price. But what we can do is change how they feel about the reward that they will get in exchange for the price. So instead of trying to, oh, sorry. Go on. Go on. No, I know. I'm just, I'm trying to paraphrase and, and active listen here. Well, basically saying, so the price will be the price. And what we really need to do is stack the value so high that the reward is significant. Like it's, it's like they say, make it a no brainer, make the mm -hmm. value so big that they feel stupid for saying no. I like, if I told you, I could give you a Lamborghini for a thousand pounds. Brand new Lamborghini, 2023, 2024, for those that are listening next year. 
you know, I could give it to you for, for, for a thousand pounds. Even if you didn't have a thousand pounds, you're like, I could go find that money because the, the reward is so big that you almost feel like a fear of loss. Is this, no, I see you humming and hawing. So, okay, good. No, educate me. Like, let's, let's correct that is the. I think that's the discrepancy that that kind of current marketing tactics have, have kind of imbued on us is that discrepancy. Um, there's something that actually happens when we do too many bonuses and we stack too much stuff. It causes a, a, a pattern mismatch from normal purchasing behavior. Okay. The pattern mismatch then introduces um, what we call, um, oh God, terms just flown out of my head. It's that's okay. Just tell me what to do. What um, do I do there? What do I need to do better? Right. So what you need to do better is you need to have higher associative recall in memory. And that comes with positioning in the marketplace. So um, what you're trying to do when you stack value and you stack bonuses is you're still trying to make the price seem smaller. You're still trying to make the price seem so small that it's that it's a no brainer. We don't need to do that. It's not actually necessary. It can help. Yes, but it's not necessary. The thing that you need to do beforehand is your positioning in the marketplace. So um, big brands do this really easily. So think Nike, think Coca-Cola, think um uh, think all of those those big brands, Adidas, et cetera, et cetera. Um, car companies are the best example of this. So um, they use something called the availability heuristic, right? So what they do is they will have like uh, an advert of their car. They'll have a picture of a BMW um, and they'll just have the picture of a BMW. What does that tell you about the car? Nothing. Does it give you any of the stats of anything? Are they giving you any bonuses? No. A lot of the time there isn't even the stuff that other brands rely on in terms of social positioning of having a pretty woman in it or a muscular man or whatever. They don't even have that. It's literally a picture of a car swooshing along a road. That's right. it. Right. Like there's, there's nothing in there. Um, and what they're doing is they have massive advertising budgets to do something called awareness advertising. Mm -hmm. And awareness advertising is just repeatedly showing the same images or the same type of thing over and over again. Because also known as brainwashing. That, <laughs> also known as brainwashing, yes. Um, because what that does is it means it has higher associative recall and memory. So when they think of a fancy car, that's the image that comes up first. So you're talking about recency bias. They, exactly. they brainwash them so much that when they think of a car, they think of their car. It's less That's about, exactly. it's less about the offer. Even it's more about just when they decide to buy a car, the most recent thing they've seen enough times is them. Pretty much. So there's some cool tests that they did. Um, and, and this, uh, I can't remember who the scientist was, where they showed like these made up characters, um, almost Chinese looking characters, right? Um, and by characters, I mean like letters. Um, so they showed all these different characters and the ones that they showed more frequently throughout the testing. And then they asked people to assign values to them. Is this a positive word or a negative word? The ones that they saw more frequently were the ones that they labeled as being positive words. The ones they saw less frequently were negative words. But there is a there's a line at which if you show up too much, it becomes irritating. And you I was gonna say, I was like, you're just endorsing all the spam marketers right now. That's what I was about to say. Yeah, then you're like, there's a limit though. Cause I'm like, no, okay, people are gonna there's listen to this and they're gonna go just haywire. I'm gonna no. call three <laughs> times a day, we're gonna text. We're going to show up at their mom's house. We're going no, to see no, 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 no. Don't do that. pigeons. Okay. Definitely don't do that. Definitely, okay. definitely don't do that. How do you know no, the limit? But, Just through testing? Um. Well, there's two parts to it. One is showing up. The first thing is we don't have budgets at, at which we can do this in a way that isn't irritating or invasive. So for smaller businesses, it's really incredibly difficult to do that. The easiest way for a, smaller, for a smaller business to do this, and it, it makes me sad that I have to say this, but the easiest way for a smaller business to skew the purchasing formula in your favor is to help your audience, to show up and be helpful. And that's why content marketing works so well, because you're creating good quality content that's helpful to your audience. And what that does is it means that you're showing up in the moments that your audience is paying attention, which is the first hurdle that you need to get over. And also, because you're helping, you're getting higher associative recall in memory because the memory is being encoded with an emotion. 
So if you show up helpfully and you're continually helping your audience, it also helps. Um, uh, so what I've yeah, seen a lot of associated with this is uh, this is an ally. Like this, this is, is someone from my hunting tribe that helps put food on my table. Exactly. But the important thing is not to, I see a lot of um, so, sort of business owners show up by telling their story and creating really emotive marketing. You're creating connections to an emotional connection that isn't a product connection. Okay. So you might be creating emotional connections that makes that person feel that they like you, but that doesn't mean that they like your products and services. Mm. And this is where a little bit of pop psychology can be a dangerous thing, right? So the most important thing is to show up in times that your audience needs you with the content that is appropriate to your products and services in a helpful and meaningful way, Mm. right? That's the important. So for those that aren't sure how to make this applicable, you take your product and you break it into six categories or topics, which maybe are related and describe your product, often called the topic wheel. And that's kind of what you create your content around, or you find the questions, the most frequently asked questions. Basically, you should do Mike Koenig's old 10, I'm writing this down for myself, 10 by 10 by four, which used to be you do 10 videos on the 10 most frequently asked questions. And then you do 10 videos on the most, uh, not the most, important questions that are not frequently asked, but should be asked. And then as four is like, you know, an opt-in video, uh, buy my thing video. Uh, if you want more quiet, it's just a question like this, visit my site video to put it at the end of all the, the 20 videos. And then a thank you page video. That was this 10 by 10 by four. But it sounds like you're talking about making content on six or eight categories that represent your product or service or how you help breaking it in. And then from that, drive them back to you and just, just keep showing up. Things like a newsletter might be like really helpful, useful for that. Think about all of the, you know, like what what has fallen out of favor because marketers, we love trends, right? Uh, think about good quality lead magnet. Why did good quality lead magnets that solved a problem that the audience had always perform so well? And then a good quality nurture series after that. And when someone is ready for sales, a good quality sales series. You know, these are these are marketing staples that still work. And the reason they work is because they do what the brain needs it to do. So let's let's break this down for people. So you're saying have a useful, like instant gratification lead magnet. Give mm-hmm. me your email and we'll solve this or do this for you right here, right now. And then they do that. And then you follow up with some useful nurture emails. And if yeah. they're engaged with that, then you pitch them. Is that what I'm hearing you say? 100%. Got it. You recently did some research on the campaigns too. I'm going to go there. I am going to go there. Let's go yeah. there. Now that the mic is on and we've hit record, let's talk about this. So this, what you just talked about was a lead magnet to a nurture and then kind of like mm-hmm. a one-time offer and only to yeah. people that have engaged. Cause the difference between window shopping and shopping is when you window shop, you don't touch anything. So if they're not engaged with your emails, they're probably not going to be responsive. Look at you shaking. She can't see the video. She's shaking her head. No. So it has to be the engaged people. Okay. So let's talk about marketing campaigns. What kinds of marketing campaigns are important for people to know? I know you've got a couple. (laughs) You know, I've got a couple. Well, um, I did a meta analysis of 300 um, businesses uh, that succeeded with marketing automation and 300 businesses that did not. Um, and I went through, um, and when I say meta-analysis, it was both a qualitative and quantitative analysis of campaigns. So taking a look at the quality of the content, that's not what I mean by qualitative, but taking a look at the terminology that was used, the wording that was used, and all the content that was inside the campaigns, as well as taking a look at how they performed, right? So all the assets that were involved and how they performed. Why do, why do some businesses succeed so massively with marketing automation? And why do some businesses not? So this is when I first kind of started out on my own. When I started my own agency, um, I wanted to understand things. And I, I got some pretty amazing people to allow me into their apps. I had a lot of support from uh, Infusionsoft at the time, which is now Keep, um, to kind of go through all of this data um, and make it make it meaningful. Um, and what I uncovered was that there are sort of 10 core component parts to a customer journey that you need to have in place in order to succeed, because that was all of the the companies that were doing so well had these component parts in place. So um, I split this up across four different stages. Lifecycle marketing was originally a thing at that time. 
And what I was looking at and, and the bit of work I did with Keep was kind of looking at this and going, you only have three stages to lifecycle marketing and you're missing a stage. You're what missing the four a stage. Stages? The, the, so the three stages originally were attract, sell, and wow, right? right. All the things you need to do to, to attract customers in, all of the things that you need to do to sell to them, and all of the things you need to do to create a good quality customer experience and get second, third purchase, right? Right, but that doesn't work because they were missing one. They were missing one. And the stage that they were missing is the stage that we've been talking about with the purchasing formula, and that is the nurture, Right. How do you get them from attention to high associative recall, high reward activation in the brain? And so I got them to include an additional stage, which was engage. So engage is everything that you do to add value um, and to kind of show up well for your audience, but also to educate. Because when you educate appropriately, you make a better quality lead. Okay. I love that. So, um, Effectively, when you take a look at your business, you should be understanding everything or, or your marketing automation for your business you should be understanding everything within those four buckets. What are you doing to attract? So what are you doing to get the attention of your leads, to understand your audience and, and actually collect that lead information? So your lead magnets effectively. Then as you move into engage, how are you adding value on top of the thing that they've already signed up for and actually proving that your positioning is in place, that you're appropriate, um, and that you can help to get that, to educate, to get that higher associative recall and memory. So what are you doing to nurture and follow up? And then if they're engaging and they're at the appropriate stage in their journey, how are you then selling to them? So how are you making the right offer at the right time and how are you closing that offer? So what, what sales nurture have you got in place to make sure that you're closing things? And then finally, as you've got the sale, what do you do now? So how do you onboard your uh, lead so that you get, again, higher associative recall and memory so that for the second time round, they're ready to purchase? How do you know when you should be offering the next stage? And then how do you collect your referrals and your testimonials, right? So and when you, you just say, give the 10 parts, but not label them one to 10. Oh, okay. No, they, they're not the 10 parts. That's just your buckets you should be thinking about. Right. But when you're thinking about the, the 10 parts, here they are, right? Are you ready? Right. I'm definitely the ready. The first thing is good quality content, right? That is the very first thing. So you can split that up into basic content to attract attention in and more advanced content to uh, get people ready to sign up for a lead magnet. Content marketing. Ads, content marketing, SEO, all that stuff, exactly. right? Okay. That all fits under that. So what is your content that you're going to use? Your content should then drive to very specific lead magnets. Lead magnets being number two. So lead magnets, people always think, oh, I need one or two lead magnets. No, 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 no. <laughs> you need a lot of lead magnets that cover all the different stages that your audience might be thinking of, right? Okay, so all the different problems that people might have, all the different stages from being um, aware of a problem to being ready to purchase, you should have content assets, which are your lead magnets that people are willing to sign up for. Lead magnets as a term is a term that really annoys me. And I'm doing very well not to swear, Daryl, and you should be proud of me. I am um, proud but of me. by saying by saying annoys me instead of all the rude words I'd rather say. Um, but lead magnets is a misnomer because people tend to think of a lead magnet as something that they get to get someone to sign up the first time. But we forget that lead magnets should also be used in the rest of the process as well. So as a as a content upgrade. So once someone has had one piece of content, offer them an upgrade to get them to the next step of the journey. Right. So something we should be using in that nurture process, again, increasing associative recall and memory, educating your audience, making them a I'm, better quality. I'm super confused here on this part. And I want to stop. Yeah. Playing so I do a lot of email newsletters for my clients. Mm -hmm. And often yeah. in the email newsletters, we try to add a lot of value. And so one of the things we do is, you know, we have workbooks and PDFs and things that people get. For example, shameless yeah. plug, people listening to this interview will be able to go get a workbook based on this interview. If they go to the uh -huh. site and sign up on your interview page, they'll get the workbook off this. And or, and, or if they're already on the email newsletter, and we've got about 10,000 yeah. e names right now. Um, that we'll send this interview to, they'll just get it in the, like, yeah. they don't need to sign up again. It's just, Fantastic. so is that a content upgrade? Cause in my mind, I'm like, we need to ask them to commit again is that's what I heard. Basically when you're saying like a content upgrade, like they have to go like, yes, Daryl, please help me some more. Like I'll take that. <laughs> I mean, that's always helpful. Um, so 
Or is that already in there? That's kind of already in there. But but my problem with lead magnets and the way that most people do them is that they're not very strategic. So what I would say, like all this stuff that you're doing right now is adding value to your audience, which is like part of your long-term nurture, which is one of the other 10 that we'll come back to in a little bit. Um, But it's all part of that adding value and educating your audience, right? Fantastic. But you need some strategic backbone lead magnets because what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to progressively profile our audience. Mm -hmm. And so progressive profiling is learning more about your audience as they're interacting with things. Their behavior tells us where they are in their journey and how ready they are to buy. But we have to design for behavior. So we have to design to know that someone is at a certain stage. So for instance, let me let me contextualize this. Let's say we've got two separate lead magnets. Let's say the lead magnet from this, the worksheet from this. Does the worksheet from this tell you that the, the person who is signing up for this is ready to take a consultancy project on? No. Not at all. But if I had a lead magnet that was a buyer's guide that helped us understand that someone is now in the purchasing process, I'm like, okay, now I know where to put you. So you have to create your lead magnets very strategically. So when I talk about content upgrades and using lead magnets through the process, when I'm working with clients, we are very strategic in the lead magnets that we create. I I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I totally get what you're saying. I just automated how to manage a phone sales team. We just, two coders and I, um, I'll, I'll spare the long story. It's in the email newsletter if people sign up, but I just, <laughs> I just got this great strategic alliance, but part of the deal is mm-hmm. I have to get them, help them. Cause they've got something like 40 locations, but they're all in non-English speaking countries and they're trying to open mm-hmm. an office in New York and they want to open up eight more. And they agreed to promote my habit hero program to all their leads and customers once a month, non-active customers once a month in three months if I can help them get this English phone team off the ground and they're going to pay me a fat retainer while I do it. Uh, I already told them my availability is very limited because I'm not looking for a job. This is my main thing. And we're having an agency. So we've outsourced an agency. Basically they paid me to, to interview six agencies, pick the one I like. That agency has a team lead for the team already. I'm supposed to be boots on ground, showing up, make sure that they're doing it, inspecting the team lead and all that, but also helping with the call recordings. The problem is I'm a busy guy. The good news is I'm wicked smart. And so what I did is I I invested. That's why we actually had to reschedule this because I was like, Kenda, I'm sleeping four hours a night, right? And, I, and I, you know, I did that for three weeks. I slept four hours a night in order to juggle everything and not sacrifice it. But now where I'm at, I had two coders and I, we set up a bunch of AI automated systems that basically upload the call recordings and transcribe them, uh, code them against my preferred three sales methods, to critique them and then spit it out in like three formats, like the main one sentence, what the rep needed to do or work on for this call, full feedback, what was done well, what was done uh, poorly, what should be done next time. And then actually give them activities to do at the beginning of the next shift to practice fixing that. And my assistant, my VA will upload, download all that content, put it in the training doc and the team lead runs it. And now I just have to show up on the Zoom call at the beginning of the day, make sure they actually do it. I have to just scan the doc, make sure it's good. But I gave away a sample of that. And so all that was just to say, that could have been an opt-in to see what I did here to then, because I'm not trying to sell anybody this stuff, but just as a, as a, as a, I have a newsletter, sending newsletter for this podcast. That's something I just gave away to add value. But from what I'm hearing from you is that could have been strategic content to go, hey, do you have a sales team? Would this be a value to you? Let me walk Correct. you through step-by-step step what I built and show 100%. you how. And maybe that would turn into more of these kind of clients. A hundred percent. Yeah. Okay. So it's more, it's more strategic. So when I say lead magnets, that's what we're talking about. We're right. talking about those, those content upgrades that are giving us, um, I call them data anchors. Right. So it is an anchor in place. When this thing fires, I'm like, oh, okay. That has told me now that person's at that part of their journey. So yeah. now I can know. Yeah them appropriately so this makes a right. ton of sense because i've seen other gurus like a previous guest on our show a couple times alex sharfin i remember mm-hmm. once he had an opt-in about drinking water how important it is for entrepreneurs to drink more water in the day and i remember looking at this looking at this page scratching my head going as you drink water i'm like effing water like how is this going to turn into sales and what i realized is he's building a list of entrepreneurs and then yeah. later he's going to exactly what you said strategically get them to opt into 
a pain point that he can help solve. But what he really exactly. needs is he needs the ability to follow up because what some people listening to this may not understand is social media. You fight your friend's wedding, your their grandma dying, all that you're battling with when you post on social media. But if you have someone's phone number or email, you get delivery a higher percentage, right? So, so I get yeah. I get that. Okay, so we've got quality content, lead magnets, both kind of front end and strategic. Yeah. Hey, what's what's number three? Number three is um, nurture. Right. So it is the emails that you send off of the back of someone signing up for a lead magnet. Right. Now, right. I get very upset when I see people's nurture campaigns um, in two parts, because most nurture is not nurture at all. It's not adding value. It's not educating. It's bullshit. It's vacuous. There is nothing inside there that is actually helpful to your audience. Um, so when you are creating a follow up campaign, your follow-up campaign from the lead magnet needs to be related to the damn lead magnet that they signed up for, right. okay? That, that, that is fundamentals. Um, but then taking that and learning from that and creating something exceptional is transitioning um, to the next stage in the process in a, in a meaningful way, right? So going through the process and being like, okay, they're here now. We know that they're at this point because they signed up for this type of lead magnet. How do we now transition them onto the next step in the process with the content upgrade? So mm. being very strategic about your lead magnet follow-up. Got it, got it, got it. So educate, engage, but have strategic mm -hmm. points to pull them out of this friend zone into, exactly. into a more serious intention. Okay, okay. So nurture. Okay. So nurture number three. Number four is welcome campaigns. So what I noticed was that the businesses that sort of did really well and got really um, good conversion rates were the businesses that had good quality welcome campaigns. So the first time someone ever signs up for your list, right? The very first time, never again, but the very first time educating your audience as to who you are. And it's pretty much the only time where you should be tooting your own horn. And the reason for that is our brain doesn't care about you. Okay. Right. It cares right. about me. That's all it cares about. It doesn't right. care about right. you and where you fit in the scheme of things. It cares about what you can do for me to help me survive better to the next day. That's right. it. Right. So your right. welcome campaign is um, a way of you bridging those two things. It's a mm. way of you going, thank you so much for signing up. Here's who we are and why we're different. And here's um, all the various different things we do. So it's providing context. Context is super important for the brain. So you're contextualizing who you are um, and how you relate to the rest of your, uh, to your audience and the problems that they have, right? And it's your opportunity to toot your horn in that, in that space, right? And then your welcome campaign is done. It never goes again. And you never really have to toot your own that much after that because the context mm. is already there. So it's positioning. Mm. Mm. Um, and all that's going to do is it's going to massively impact the reward activation and the context around which people are understanding the rest of the content that they receive from you. So welcome campaigns are super, super important in building that relationship with your audience. Mm. Love it. Okay. So four. So number five. Um, is, of course, your sales campaigns, right? But being very clear that there is this little gap between your nurture campaigns and your sales campaigns. Now, if you create your content upgrades or your lead magnets strategically, you will know when it is appropriate to sell. So as you said, only selling to the people who are engaged. And when I'm talking about this, I am only selling to the people that are showing me sales intent behavior. So anyone who is, so sales intent behavior is when I can see that someone is interacting on pricing pages, interacting with content that tells me that they're a bottom of funnel or, or a decision maker or, or a decision making point. So I'm not selling to people who aren't interested or who aren't at the appropriate stage in the journey. Those people get content upgrades until they're ready. Okay. Um, right. But I'm looking right. for sales intent behavior. Those people get pushed into the sales process, right? Mm -hmm. Where you've either got, um, and this is where we kind of split into two categories here. So it's either for an e-commerce company, it's either going to be your e-commerce led sales campaigns for a service-based company. It would be service-less, the service-led sales campaigns. And if you have a sales team, this is my special secret sauce and the thing that I invented, which is the sales motivational series. 
And a sales motivational series is for those of you who have got sales processes that run over like 12 months, 18 months, right? You know, these really long sales cycles. Um, it is a series of contents, bottom of funnel content that is designed to contextualize and motivate people within that sales cycle, right? So keeping you top of mind with value add content, but also stuff that is interesting at that point in time. Okay, mm. so that is very, very contextualized and powerful. So that is, um, that's part number five. Okay. Part number six follows on from sales and it's cart abandonment. Um, so cart abandonment, traditionally the scope of e-commerce, but cart abandonment should be utilized for anything right. where people go through and don't complete the process that you want them to do. So whether it is in the sales cycle, looking at a booking page for talking to a sales rep and not actually booking the call, why didn't they book the call? Right. Whether it is, you know, in a um, in a service-based thing where they go through and they look at the pricing page, but they don't sign up, they don't, you know, complete the contact us form. Whatever the case is, they have shown us above everyone else in that campaign that they are that they are interested. Right. Why are we not treating differently? And that's right, where you're caught. Right, right. okay. okay. And then we move on to number seven, which is an amalgamation of all of the things that you should do when someone does purchase. So someone purchases. Yes, we are happy, happy days. Someone purchases and goes through. Now you're thinking about your onboarding and your fulfillment, right? So how do you get people through the stages of really owning the product or service that they have just signed up for? And how do you get them really, really comfortable within that process and within those structures to be happy with your product and with your service? So creating a really good quality onboarding sequence that then transitions into a testimonial sequence after you've made sure that they're okay, okay? Um, and that sort of forms the basics of what most of the okay businesses did. The businesses that did reasonably well with marketing automation had stuff mm -hmm. in place for all of that. Um, but I know you're a clever sausage and you will have gone, where's eight, nine and 10. Yes. Um, yeah. Uh, where, where are the other bits? So the businesses that did really exceptionally were really, really good at what I would say is the most important part of the process, which is number eight, which is long-term nurture. So long-term nurture being your newsletter, your content that you send uh, to your entire audience. Oh, so, you're just um, trying to flatter me now. That's what you're trying to do. <laughs> always a flat, always a flat. Um, no, no, flattery gets you everywhere though. Um, however, uh, long-term nurture is the backbone of everything, right? It's that keeping that high associative recall in memory. Um, it is making sure that you're educating your audience, you're providing positioning, you're staying top of mind. And what I noticed was that was more responsible for second, third, fourth, and fifth purchases than specified second, third, and fourth purchase campaigns, right? So that was more responsible for additional sales than, than, than specific sales campaigns were, mm. which is a big indication to us of how important nurture is in the process. Mm. Oh, 100%, 100%, 100%. So we've got, we've got that as number eight, but to kind of really take it to the next level, and this was the bit that I sort of um, experimented on, was how do you take a customer journey and the way that a lot of people tend to think of customer journeys is is very linear so they tend to think of it in terms of you bring a lead in you do some nurture you sell and then you get second or third sales right and we think of it and, and i think this is because of funnels um i am not a fan of the concept of funnels mm. and that's because it strategically impairs our thinking um mm. so when you think of a funnel you think of a, a linear process effectively that people are going through and purchasing is not a linear process at all, mm, mm, right? Mm, I love um, that, yes. The zigzag all the way through. So how do you take the process and how do you turn it into a cyclic process rather than a linear process? And we know that purchasing behavior for repeat purchasing is cyclic. So why are we always creating our customer journeys to be linear instead of cyclic? And how do you take the concept of a customer journey and turn it into something that is cyclic? And that is what the next parts of the process are designed to do. So you have your long-term nurture, and we kind of already sort of hinted at this. 
Um, and we have your maybe your content upgrades and we have your sales intent behavior. And this is where number nine comes into the process, which is my favorite part of the process, and that is progressive profiling. So it is understanding how to create a feedback loop between your content and everything else that you're putting together to drop people back into the sales process at appropriate stages within the journey. Mm. Um, so that is, you know, your pro your progressive profiling is learning more about people the entire way through the process um, with number 10, which is your data anchors. Okay. So that is a specific behaviors that you are looking for that flag people up, right? But your progressive profiling is leading people up to that stage. So we are designing for behavior. We're being very strategic with the content that we create and we have our data anchors in place. But your progressive profiling is understanding how close people are getting and what nudges do you need to put in place to get people to that next step. So if you want somebody to interact with a piece of content, what should you do? Tell them about it. Tell yes. them the story about it. Exactly. Like literally tell them it exists. Don't create a lead magnet that's super strategic and leave it on your website. If someone signs up for something that's very early stage in the funnel and you want to get them to a later stage in the funnel, tell them about the, the lead magnet stage. or the content upgrade. You know, that's your nudge. That's your next part in the process, yeah. right? And that is your, um, that starts creating that that feedback loop and and gives you those data anchors which is number 10 so that's that's progressive profiling in action and that allows you to take something that is very linear and create it cyclic it allows you to take one lead and turn it into multiple sales opportunity within that process and it allows you to have an extremely healthy, well-segmented database that is kicking off all the time. This also allows you to do things like re-engagement campaigns and all that other like stuff, all the housekeeping items that you should have in place with your marketing automation. Yes. Um, and that that's the 10 component parts. I, lo I love this. So first off, applause. I don't know if this is going to work, but I don't know if you heard anything in a minute. I have a soundboard that's got these buttons that doesn't need to work. Okay. There's supposed to be an applause there. That's okay. So this was great. This was really great. And I love, first off, a huge part of this that is unmentioned or un, like reading between the lines is the emphasis. I don't know if you can tell my cats and he's walking around crying. Um, I don't know. The, one of the emphasis is, is on repeat purchases. You're like, you've got the person, you're trying to make the first sale, half of this stuff. So the, I mean, so, all right, you have the content lead magnet nurture. I mean, even the nurture is about following up and maintaining a long-term relationship, you know, welcome campaign, sales campaign. I feel like the first four or five are kind of like bread and butter. Everybody does it. But now we've got the card abandonment. I, I would call this the Sam I am campaign, right? Like from Dr. Seuss's green eggs and ham. Would you, with yeah. a goat, would you in a boat? Would you like follow up, right? Why did you not buy? Would you because of this? Would you yeah. because of that? And then you've got your post-purchase onboarding uh, and then the long-term nurture. And the fact that you're like, let's make more offers to these people. And here's a spoiler alert for those listening. It doesn't even necessarily have to be your own product. Once you have that relationship with someone, you can help identify them and recommend other people's content or other people's things yeah. because they're, they're you, you know, if, if, if you go on a date with someone and then six months goes by and you haven't talked to them or dated, is that still your date? Are you still dating them? No. And so the whole point is to keep people engaged because then yeah. they may come back to you. And a great example is if you install pools, maybe someone only needs one pool in their lifetime, but maybe they need landscaping. Maybe they need a maintenance package for the pool. Maybe they need swimming lessons. Maybe they need a fence built. Maybe they need some daycare. You don't even know what they need. There's all sorts of, maybe they need the pool to be winterized, opened up for the yeah. summer. There's all these sequential things around just the digging of the pool. Maybe they need help with the bylaws. Maybe they need swimming classes for their kids. Like there's all these things that you can offer that you don't even necessarily need to provide, but you become the hub of all this activity and you also can collect the money for it, right? Yeah. So I just love, there's such an emphasis on that. And that was the thing that wasn't said that was like read between the lines is all these really successful businesses that you looked at, they made more money off a of sale, which increased their ability to advertise exactly. in the beginning because they're exactly. not just trying to live off of the first sale. Exactly. They're creating a series of, of purchases, a lifetime customer journey where that person's going to pay the money over time. 
by exactly. multiple things. And, and it's all, and a lot of it is automated and behavior, behavior based. I think this is so powerful. I think people are going to want to listen to this call a couple of times just to get all the nuggets <laughs> after it. Um, I will so the customer lifetime value. Like that's that's where it is for the businesses that are successful. It's a hundred percent customer lifetime value. And if people want to know more about this, they want to get in touch. What are some of the best places or ways for them to contact you or find out? Oh, I am uncontactable. No, I'm joking. Um, so the easiest the easiest way to get hold of me is always email. It's just kenda@automationninjas.com. Um, that's the easiest way to get hold of me uh, directly. Um, then secondarily, I do have a book. If you just want to read stuff and, and don't want to actually talk, go and have a look at that. Um, that's on Amazon. It's just Hack the Buyer Brain. Um, and then, of course, I have so much content on the website. Um, so we are content marketers through and through. So if you're interested in this kind of stuff and you're by all means, go have a look at the at the blog. Um, mm -hmm. There's over 300 blogs on there on this on this type of content. So that's been so check out automationninjas.com or go buy her book, hack the buyer brain, or send her an email, K-E-N-D-A at automationninjas.com. Kendra, this was so fantastic. Again, this is something probably people want to listen to multiple times over. This was a masterclass and then some. Is there anything I haven't asked you that I should have asked you? Oh, many things, but it's uh, it th that's the second interview. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, thank you so much for coming and sharing. Knowing that you have your own audience, your own following, your own customers, your own clients, your own things to do. Thank you for coming and sharing with me and mine, so we can all all do a little bit better. Thank you for having me. Hmm.